All right. Well, welcome to Sunday Morning Elective Journey 180. Let's see. Journey 180 is today. <laughs> Just making sure I'm on the right page. February 16th. God's Law. All right. Yep. Good. So we're going to be going through... Uh, Moses, we've gone through, if you were at the mine, we talked a little bit about Moses um, from the beginning, sort of his first 80 years, which sounds like a lot, but actually his first 80 years is very, not talked about too much in the Bible. It's his last 40 years that um, the Bible spends quite a bit of time on. Today we're going to sort of go from the moment he said, finally, after a bunch of excuses, said yes and headed back towards Egypt. So we're going to go back into Egypt, talk a little bit about um what happened there, we're going to walk through the plagues, Red Sea crossing, where that actually took place, what that actually means, um, all the way up to Mount Sinai, where that took place, where that's at, um, and then we will move on into the Ten Commandments. Um, as we've talked about through the Journey 180, Journey 180 is basically a historical study. So we're walking through the timeline, and I try to avoid really dropping anchor too much on stories that everybody knows, um, but Moses is really a, a, a linchpin in the entire story, um, so he is referred to many times, both him and Abraham are quoted more than anybody else in the New Testament, so we will definitely spend some time, plus Moses is fascinating, Moses is a, a, a true quirky character, um, so let's review a little bit from the mine, we, all, we say that at the mine and on Sundays that if we hit something that's fairly important. We'll make sure we touch that on the other end of things as well. Um, first off, how many were at first service? Good. How many going to third service? Good. All right. So um, we did baptisms this morning, and I got to uh, be the one that baptized. Um, and just a funny story on that. It's actually really embarrassing. It could have been horrifically embarrassing, but um, it worked out. In my closet, we have clothes that I know in my mind are Chris's not in good shape clothes. Okay? So they're rather, they're a little larger. And then on the other part of the closet, we have the Chris is in normal shape. I'll say normal. Uh, side of the closet. The Chris is in incredible shape. Those are high school clothes and those are up in the attic. But, uh, uh <laughs> so I sort of have these two sides of the, of the um, closet, and of course I'm a messy person, so they merge quite often. Um, and so this morning I was like, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta do baptisms during the first service. So I just grabbed the swimsuit. I've already talked to every, all four that are um, getting baptized, walked through the whole idea, you know, this has nothing to do with salvation. There's nothing, trust me, there's nothing special about the water in that place. Um, and walked through the whole thing, and then I go in, it's like 10 minutes before I'm supposed to go out on stage. I go into the bathroom, and I grab the suit, I put it on, and you already know, by the way. It gets up to about here, you already know, oh, this is the wrong, wrong deal. Um, you don't have to get up to here. You know it. And I was like, oh, my goodness. This is horrible. But how horrible could it get? So I just kept going up. Um, it was here. There, it wasn't even close. Demonstration. That's how close the button or the tie was. And I was like... That's horrible. <laughs> That's not going to work. Luckily, I have one of those big declare shirts that went down all the way. 
called my wife like as if that's going to do anything. She's 30 or 20 miles away and there's 10 minutes, um, but I have to bemoan um, my predicament. And so, yeah, there's my, these are my Chris's not in as good a shape. Um, man, those would have been good. Well, you don't need to stretch them out. All right, there you go. <laughs> we'll edit that out of the, the show. So, so, oh well. so I just tied it as tight as possible, gave myself a real hourglass figure, um, and just prayed that, man, I hope we don't have to, to cut to a commercial or something, you know. Uh, and then, as I was walking out, the second thing that terrified me, I was like, oh, shoot, how am I going to even get into this thing? i got to like, get in like a penguin or something, because I couldn't, oh, it was a mess. But... Hopefully none of you noticed anything, so I, I played it off well. All right. <laughs> so thank you. So we'll have to refer back to the film to see what the faces were like of the people I baptized. But um, all right, so back to the Bible um, for everybody online. Here we go. We are going to um, walk through. Um, we're going to walk through uh, Moses today. Review. We talked a little bit, and I'm sorry about the um, handouts. Um, I found out that we actually didn't even have enough handouts for Tuesday night, which is actually a good thing um, that people are taking it because I, I printed out a lot of those. So we will have those handouts again Tuesday and we'll have those online. And if I would have been on top of things, they would have already been online, but I still haven't sent those um, the proper direction. So we'll have that. But basically the handout had um, had a couple things. It had the dynasty that we believe, right, that I believe that Moses um, played a part in. And it basically also had the five excuses that um, um, Moses used um, with God. I can walk through the excuses real quick with you. Um, the first excuse um, that Moses um, talked about, um, his first excuse was, who am I? So Moses just talked to God and said, you know, who am I? Who, who could I possibly be um, to go out and do what I'm supposed to do in Egypt? We walked through the whole idea that as Moses is talking to the burning bush, that most likely that was a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ. So it's a theophany or Christophany, whatever you want to call it there. Um, and so as Moses is, is talking, he, he basically Moses doesn't want to go, but he, he hasn't quite said that yet. Um, so who am I? And so we walk through the idea that Moses actually was the one person in the world that was most qualified to do the task that God was going to place in front of him. And we need to understand as Christians that whatever task God gives us, whether it's freeing a people from a foreign country or it's something just simple, walking across the street to your neighbor, whatever it is, you're the... You're the most qualified person in the world to do that. Okay? You are the most qualified person in the world to do the task that God has given you. And so Moses immediately says, well, who am I? And God's pretty much his only response is, I, I will be with you. So it doesn't really matter who you are, Moses, because I'm with you, and that's all we need. Then he said, well, that's great, but second excuse, what do I say? And more importantly, who are you? Which actually is a pretty good question to ask a burning bush. Um, who are you? Um, and he says, I am who I am. And we walk through the idea that, um, and that Jesus uses this terminology quite a bit. If you look in the New Testament, Jesus says over and over, I am the living bread. I am from above. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. All those I am statements appear in the Gospel of John. So the fact that the burning bush looks at Moses and says, I am who I am, um, further indicates that this most likely was a, a pre-incarnate version of Christ. Um, 
the third thing Moses says, well, that's great, but I have no power. And God's basic response as he um, goes through things is, well, I am the power. Okay? Again, all these are excuses. God doesn't forgive excuses, only sins. And so as Moses is just pouring out excuse after excuse after excuse, God's like, it doesn't matter. Go, go, go. Well, then Moses says again, well, I have no speech. God's basic response to that is, I am the word. Again, it doesn't matter what kind of speech you've prepared or what kind of speech you think you have. And by the way, we talked about the misnomer that um, for years we thought, well, Moses might have been a stutterer. Um, I don't know that for sure. I think that's uh, a little bit of an additive. Um, the fact is, Moses actually was good in speech. Moses wasn't necessarily telling the truth here. Um, Acts 7.22 sort of um, burst that bubble. As Stephen's going through his, his speech, he says, Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was powerful in both speech and action. The fact that Moses was the, the prince of Egypt and he had the responsibilities that he had, he was a good leader. He was good in speech. Now, Moses could have been referring to, you know what, these people might not understand me. There's been some time removed. I'm technically an Egyptian um, um, to them, so maybe, but I think Moses was just given a, a lame excuse because he definitely had speech. And then finally, Moses cuts to the chase, not me. Not me, God. I, I can't go. And God's response to that was go. So we walked through that. Um, we also walked through the, the whole dynasty issue, and I'll t- touch on that briefly, because um, we had a couple questions afterwards. Number one, um, as you look at Egyptian history, Egyptian history is, is hard to understand. Egyptians don't understand their own history. They don't understand their own chronology, their timelines. There are multiple different timelines, multiple different names for pharaohs. Each pharaoh has probably anywhere between five and ten different names. Uh, not all of them are actually that. And so it's really hard to pin. Like for American history, we sort of know, all right, every four years or every eight years, we got this person, this person, this person. And there's not really... A hard chronology, but back then it was a lot harder um, to understand. And so, if you look at Egyptian history and just briefly, um, there's three different things you need to understand. There, there are kingdoms. There are three kingdoms. There's the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom. And with each one of those kingdoms, there are dynasties that are within those kingdoms. Between the first and second kingdom, or between the old and the middle kingdom, is what's called the first intermediate period. Okay, it's a period in between. Um, and then between the second and the third would be um, the second intermediate period. I believe that if you look at the chronology, and again, there's different chronologies, there's different dates, there's um, high, high system of dates, middle system of dates, and low system of dates, I believe in the high system of dates, which puts Moses somewhere around 1500, which goes around our, our, our timeline um, area. So I believe that would put Moses in the 18th dynasty. Okay, so somewhere in the 18th dynasty. Now, for those who are new to this class and those who are new to the mind, we always, always, always say, when we talk about stuff that's outside of the, of the Bible, that doesn't mean it's inerrant. And including the maps in the back of the Bible, including the, um, the subheadings and all that kind of stuff. In fact, even the chapters and the verses numbers were added at a later time. Okay? And so when we start talking about other history, that's just what it is. We, we can't be for sure. The further back in history you get, the, the more confusing and less sure we can be about things. 
So we can't be dogmatic about this. This is just a guess that Moses most likely was the 18th dynasty. The reason I believe that is because it sort of fits in the 18th dynasty better than other dynasties. Now for years, Moses was sort of attributed to the 19th dynasty, which had Ramses in it. Okay, and, and we saw all the old movies they called the Pharaoh Ramses, and I think that's a, a mislabeling of who the Pharaoh was. A lot of times they called Pharaohs Ramses, even though they weren't necessarily called Ramses. Even like in Roman history, a lot of times they were called Caesar, even though they're actually Augustus or Octavius. Or, okay, so they weren't necessarily Caesar, Caesar. Um, so I believe he appears in the 18th dynasty, which would put Joseph in the Middle Kingdom around the 12th dynasty. Um, I believe Moses appears during the reign of Thutmosis. Thutmosis I, I believe, is when um, he's the one that gave the edict to throw the babies in the Nile. I believe Moses was born somewhere around 1530. Thutmosis II followed Thutmosis I, and then everything starts getting confusing. Um, Hat Shepsut um, follows, and then we've got Thutmosis III. Thutmosis III and Hat Shepsut reign at the same time, because when Thutmosis II died, Thutmosis III was still an infant, so Hat Shepsut had to take ownership, and then um, she never really relinquished that, and so that caused some issues. I believe that Thutmosis III was um, the pharaoh that that Moses dealt with in the in the Exodus, the one that he asked to let his people go. So Amenhotep followed after that. It could have been him as well. Um, not all the dates necessarily um, play out. I do believe um, Pharaoh or Queen Hatshepsut was the pharaoh's daughter of the Bible. Again, we can't be dogmatic about that. Now, before we get moving on, I had a, I had a person and a couple of people um, ask me about the whole Josephus thing. Because once we get out of the Bible, you have to go into history. And you have to look at historians. And the, the historians of the time, um, the first century, um, first century A.D., one of the historians was a man named um, Flavius Josephus. He was a Jewish historian. Um, there was other historians out there, Suetonius, Tacitus, um, Herodotus, the, the uh, father of history, uh, Thucydides, there were a whole bunch of different historians back then. And so someone came up and said, well, we can't really trust Josephus because he's not even a historian. He's just a, uh, a politicist. And, you know, there is a little bit of truth in that, but the problem is all historians have a political bent. Okay. All historians have a political bent. And the further back in history you go, the more political they go. Because the only way historians were able to publish or put books out or anything is if they were hired by the emperor to, to write um, the history of their people or whatever. Josephus was hired not by Jews. He was hired by the Romans. Judaism and, and the Jews consider Josephus a traitor. Consider him a traitor. Josephus is also not a big fan of Christianity. So Josephus, I believe, personally, is a valid historian. Does he have some embellishments? Yes, most historians do. There's a, there's a couple terms in history that you want to be aware of. Number one, winners write the history. Okay? Whoever wins the war, they have the privilege of writing the history about the war. And so they're going to slant it towards their their participation in it. If you look at World War II and you look at someone who is a Japanese historian and you read their works as compared to an American historian, Ambrose or whatever, 
it's like you're reading two different wars, okay? There's going to be sympathy towards the Japanese cause on the Japanese. So it really depends. Winners write history. And winners' history typically lasts because the losers, uh, especially when we get into the ancient times, cease to exist for the most part. And so no one commissions them to write a history of the losing side. Modern history, yes, we start getting other, other details. Okay? And so as we grow up, we look at all the heroes and greats of the United States. We need to understand that the United States also did some bad things in their history as well. And so, but that's not always taught in the history classes. So, um, Josephus, I believe, was a historian. If you look back, and, and he is well respected. Um, so we can look at that, and when we look at Josephus, Josephus looks into Moses' life a little more. Another point was brought out, well, how can Josephus be an accurate person on Moses' life when he's 1,500 years removed? Well, I would say the same thing on modern historians telling us about what happened first century um, Rome. I mean, they're 2,000 years removed. So, again, um, we have to look at these things and understand that, yes, they could have some error. But it seems, according to Jewish tradition, and sort of backed up by Josephus, that Moses was a general in the army. And that would make sense because most pharaohs were military warlords. They were heading of their armies. They were the ones that did the conquests. Even while pharaohs were in reign, they would often go out and, and be part of a conquest. That was part of that their DNA. If those who were back when we talked about Sir Noah's three sons, that fits right in with Egyptian DNA, that you know they would be a warlord-type society. And so it makes perfect sense that Moses absolutely would have been a general, um, but again, the Bible doesn't say he was a general. So we'll leave it at that. So the Bible does say he was well-educated. He was a leader. He was well uh, in speech. He grew up in, the, um, in all the great um, education of Egypt. And Egypt did have phenomenal education. They were the high end of, of civilization at that time. So today we're going to start moving into Moses is finally gone, and he's heading back into Egypt. He's run into Pharaoh, whether it's Thutmose III or Amenhotep or a completely different dynasty. We don't know, and it really doesn't matter ultimately. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus, and let's look um, first, let's go ahead and look into the ten, ten plagues. And again, with the journey 180, we don't have time to drop anchor on every little story, so we're going to be flying through this whole whole thing. Um, we don't even have an, as much time as the movie had to go through all this. So um, so let's look at verse, or chapter, let's go to chapter 7. Okay, chapter 7 is when the plagues began. Now remember, the idea of the whole um, exodus is we, um, God's had his people in Egypt for a period of about 350 to 400 years. So they've been what I would call an incubator, okay? Egyptians would not touch touch Hebrews, okay? So there would not be any intermarrying in this time. So literally for 400 years, this race was able to grow without intermarrying in any other circumstance, unique to the times, okay? No other civilization can say that. So we go from about 70 people that we see Joseph brought in. And remember, we, we said Joseph was that ultimate shepherd that ended up becoming Prince of Egypt, then there's that gap, and then we'll go from a prince of Egypt back down to shepherd. It's really cool how God does that. Okay, So for 400 years, they're in that incubator. This group of 70 grew to possibly a couple million people. Okay, So they start overwhelming Egypt. Egypt starts, the pharaohs start to fear that they're going to take over because they hearken back to when the Hiskos were there, which I believe are actually the, the Israelites, and they said, we can't let them take, take over again. 
Okay, and so they start putting them in, in slavery. A lot of the great um, during Thutmosis in the 18th dynasty, a lot of the great structures were being built. I believe that um, the um, Hebrews did a lot of those buildings. Um, so we get to a point where the the pharaohs are like, we can't let them multiply anymore. Okay, we're going to start throwing their babies in the Nile. We're going to start telling the Hebrew wives uh, or Hebrew midwives um, to kill them. By the way, another topic that was brought up, and we will really hit this this Tuesday, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. Um, but the idea was brought, well, weren't the Hebrew midwives lying? And why did God condone that? Isn't that, isn't that a sin? And isn't that um, situational ethics and, and all that kind of stuff? And so we'll really talk about um, that Tuesday. But we, we do understand that God um, gives us permission to disobey the authorities if the authorities are disobeying God. Okay? So if the United States comes to you and says, you know what? You need to murder your firstborn. You have every right biblically to say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I will not do that. You can have my second, but no, I'm just you, no. Absolutely not. Sorry, Todd. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, we, have, we have every right to do that. But we'll, we'll, we'll um, unpack that a little more um, Tuesday night. So Moses gets in there, um, talks with the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh basically says, "Absolutely not. We're not going to let your people go." Um, for the main reason is we we need them. <laughs> we need them. And so, starting in verse 14, we start going through the first of ten plagues. And to understand these plagues, and why God chose certain plagues, we need to understand Egyptian, um, um, the religious aspect of what Egyptians believed. Egyptians were pantheistic. They they believed pretty much like modern-day India, that everything's a god. Okay, the earth's a god, the sun's a god, the universe is a god, that frog's a god, don't touch it. Okay, and so... Everything is a god. The Nile is a god. In fact, parts of the Nile are gods, and they each represent um, different things. So as we look at that, um, let's walk through some of these plagues. And by the way, we talk about historians, and is this anywhere in Egyptian history? There actually is, and the the more archaeologists dig in there, the more they start finding out, oh, there's more references to Hebrew culture. There's more references um, to certain things. There's one thing, you can look this up at a different time. It's called the Ipuer Papyrus, I-P-U-W-E-R. And as you read this, it talks about a time when Egypt actually goes through some pretty horrific things. And if you read the papyrus, listen to some of the things it talks about. The river is blood, men shrinking from tasting human beings and thirst after water. That is our water. That is our happiness. We shall, what shall we do in respect thereof? It talks about another plague. All the animals, their hearts weep, cattle's moan. Behold, cattle are left to stray, and there is none to gather them together. It talks about another part of a plague. Um, forsooth, gates, columns, and walls are consumed by fire. Lower, lower Egypt weeps. The entire palace is without its revenues. To it belong wheat and barley, geese and fish. Grain has perished on the other side. Um, all that has perished, which was yesterday seen, the land is left to its weariness like the cutting of flax. The land is without light. 
And then it talks about the final plague during this era. The children of the princes are cast out in the streets. He who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. It is groaning throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. That's not the Bible. That's from Egyptian papyrus. That's from Egyptian history. Now, again, we're not going to be dogmatic, but that sounds an awful lot like what we're about to read. It sounds like a lot of the, the plagues um, that the Egyptians had to deal with. So again, I think the more archaeology digs and the more we start unearthing things and the more we can start understanding, um, it took years, it took years for them to even translate hieroglyphics from the original Rosetta Stone and all that. So... In none of those things were they able to say, ah, here's definitive evidence that the Bible doesn't exist. However, the opposite has been true over and over and over again. Places that they didn't, had no evidence, but the Bible talked about, and they thought the Bible was crazy, all of a sudden, oh, that city was unearthed, or this. So that happens over and over and over again. So as we look through the Bible, we have to come to it with um, sort of like innocent until proven guilty, which I don't think it's ever going to be proven guilty, that the Bible over and over and over again holds up to the test of time. So let's look at the, the first plagues. The reason why God chose these specific plagues weren't because um, these were the most effective ways or these are way better than a nuclear bomb. or these are, it, it has everything to do with what the Egyptians worshipped. Okay, And I thought Tim did a phenomenal job today unpacking what it means to worship and unpacking what it means to sacrifice and the whole idea of the 13 and stuff. Well, the Egyptians did worship. They were a very religious society. They took very serious their worship, specifically with the different elements. And so we look at this first plague um, in Exodus 7.17, and it, it's a plague dealing with the Nile. Now, the Nile, above most things in Egypt, was an object of worship. And the Nile um, was turned to what? Blood. This was a judgment against um, the Apis, or Apis, the god of the Nile. It was also a judgment against Isis, the god, goddess of the Nile, and Kunum, guardian of the Nile. And so as people are worshipped the Nile and the gods of the Nile, and all of a sudden the Nile is becoming no longer fertile. The Nile, it seems like, well, these gods are to be, being defeated. This happens again several times in the Old Testament. Remember when um, um, God um, showed that he was greater than all the gods of Baal. And, and he had to, uh, so here again, God is showing that, you know what, these gods you worshipped are not real gods. I am the God over all of creation. The second plague, bringing the frogs um, from the Nile, by the way, the Nile turning to blood would naturally, the frogs would be going, this is lame, they, they, would, they would start leaving the Nile. Um, and so the second plague was a, a judgment against um, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Heket, um, H-E-Q-E-T, um, which was a frog-headed goddess. And so the frogs um, were thought to be sacred and not to be killed. However, when they were invading your life, that became awful hard. The third one was, um, the third plague was that of gnats. Um, this was against the judgment of Set, the god of the desert. Um, the fourth plague um, was um, flies and a judgment uh, on the god um Probably Ray or a god named Ukachik. <laughs> Be careful saying that one. Um, 
The next one, the fifth plague, was against was the death of the livestock. Um, this was a judgment against the goddess Hathor and also the god god of Ape, or god Apis. Um, the third one, the sixth one, was boils. Was a judgment against several gods over health and disease. Sunu, Isis, among many. Um, the next um, plague, um, and this one before. Um, before we get into this next plague, God sort of takes a pause and gives a warning um, to Pharaoh. So turn to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full forces of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. In other words, there is no other God like me. Okay, And so he sort of takes a little pause in all the destruction, and then he goes right back into it. And so we, we continue to go through these plagues, and, and, and we see all the way up to the final plague. Remember what the final plague was? Death of the firstborn. By the way, in the 18th dynasty, both, both, both Thutmose's three... Let me get back to it so I know what I'm talking about. Um, Amenhotep um, two and Thutmose's three... Um, both of them were followed not by their firstborn, but by their secondborn. Okay? The next pharaoh in line was not the firstborn. Okay? So Amenhotep was not followed by his firstborn. His firstborn died somehow. Okay? Thutmosis three. Amenhotep two was not his firstborn. His firstborn was a man named Amenhat. Okay? So, and again, and Amenhotep's um, Firstborn was named Amenhotep. There's no numbers because he never lived long enough to get the number. Um, and so as you look in um, Egyptian history, both those two pharaohs that, that would have been alive during the time of the plagues, both of them were followed by someone who was not their firstborn. So again, um, that sort of makes sense because their firstborn, according to the Bible, would have died. Okay, so um, as we look at the plagues, these are all these are all against gods, um, against or, um, Egyptian gods, and Pharaoh ultimately, like Caesar, was considered uh, a god as well. And so, the judgment against the Pharaoh was the loss of his firstborn. Okay, so after the the loss, and we don't have time to go through it, but um, talk about the Passover. By the way, on your journey. Um, 180. On Good Friday, we're going to be doing a, 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 a Passover, a Last Supper reenactment. Um, we're going to walk through, eat everything that Jesus and his disciples would have eaten that night, walk through exactly what was happening. We're going to walk through the seven unfair trials that happened, walk through the, the crucifix and all that kind of, or the crucifix, the, the cross and all that kind of stuff um, on that night. And of course, because the Last Supper has everything to do with um, what happened with the, the original Passover, we're going to walk through in detail um, what happened there. Okay, so we know that finally the, um, the Pharaoh said, go, go, you may go. And by the way, on, the, on that um, Ipur um, papyrus, there's also talk about slaves having gold around there, uh, so it sort of indicates that as they left, they had a bunch of gold as well. So Moses led his people, and now they're going across um, What? 
They're going through the desert and pretty quick um, they'll eventually come up to something they would cross. The Red Sea. So I'm going to have a, pa- a handout handed to you. Now I don't want you to just look at this handout and, and just tune me out. Okay, don't do that. But this handout is fairly fascinating. Again, we'll walk through it. It is not saying dogmatically this is exactly what happened. But everybody in the back of your Bible, um, the thicker your Bible, the more likely you have maps. How many have maps in the back of your Bible? All right. Can I tell you that not all those maps are accurate? They are the best guesses. But in the back, you will probably find a map that talks about uh, Mount Sinai. And you'll, and you'll be able to see um, Egypt, and you'll be able to see the, the two-pronged horn um, little water pieces that go up, which creates the little ice cream cone known as the Sinai Peninsula. And that peninsula is named after Mount Sinai, so obviously Mount Sinai has to be there. Um, and then on the far east side is um, Saudi Arabia. So what I'm handing you out um, today, and I actually need one of those, is a couple things. And we're going to look at these because I'm going to suggest that the route that the Egypt or that the Israelites took is not what we would consider the normal route that we would see in the movies and maybe on your map for a couple reasons. Okay? So let's let's look at this this whole piece rather quick. And before we do this, I want you to turn in your Bible to First Corinthians chapter ten. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You can put your little bookmark in Exodus because we're going to be coming back to Exodus chapter 15. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Let me get to that. Romans, 1 Corinthians, there you are. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now this is written to the church of Corinth, one of Paul's church plants. And we see the big 10 and the little 1. Again, those are added way later in history um, to help us find our way around the Bible. It says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors... We're all under a cloud or the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that God was Christ. Who accompanied them? Christ. Again, Jesus was heavily active in the Old Testament. Okay? So that cloud, that pillar, that, that's, again, God, Jesus, going with um, the Israelites. And they were baptized in what? Okay? The whole idea of them crossing the Red Sea wasn't a surprise to God. By the way, the very idea of God being omniscient, which means he's all-knowing, means it's impossible for God to be surprised. Okay, so we always ask, what if, was there anything God can't do? Yeah, he can't be surprised because he's all-knowing. Okay? So God knew what was going to happen, and God used the Red Sea as an example, just what we did today. Someone who was in bondage, who passed through and now has life. Okay? Paul equates this very exodus 
to being baptized into Christ, okay? To being dead in sin, dead in slavery, dead into your into the past, and you walk through, and now you're baptized in the new. And so Paul says these people were baptized to Moses. Moses was now their leader. They, they, they needed to leave Egypt behind. They needed to leave everything behind, and now they needed to follow this new path. So this whole idea of them coming to the Red Sea wasn't going, God going, oh, what do I do? Uh, split. Okay, that wasn't what happened. Okay, This was used for, for a reason. Okay, This was used for a reason. So they get up to this Red Sea. Now, as you look at the map, look at the very top. For those online, um, download your PDF. Okay? Um, we see Egypt. Now, this is a satellite view. We see Egypt right there, correct? To your left. You see the Sinai Peninsula, correct? That middle ice cream cone. And then you see what's modern-day Saudi Arabia. The time that this happened... In the 18th dynasty, and it's not just the 18th dynasty, this covers most of Egypt. Egypt's borders did not end at the left side of your map where the Red Sea is. It ended on the right side of your map. That's where Egypt ended. Now, modern day, that might not be, but it, that's where it ended. So it makes no sense for Moses to cross the Red Sea on the left side just to go right back into Egypt where there were military outposts and there... That makes no sense. When Moses orig originally fled, where did he flee to? Midian, okay? Which is Saudi Arabia, okay? That's where Mount Sinai is. When we look at further um, descriptions or references to Mount Sinai, they talk about Arabia, not the peninsula, but yet your map in the back of the Bible probably puts that dot square in the middle of that ice cream cone, probably a little south. Okay? Anybody have a map like that? Okay? Okay? I would say that is wrong because it makes no sense for them to flee to from Egypt within Egypt. They were not safe there. This was not a place. Nor would this have been the original place that Moses could have seen originally. So, um, I don't think it's there. Why is it called Mount Sinai then? Here's why. The Emperor Constantine, around 300 um, AD, 330, whatever, ended up becoming a Christian. Okay, And Rome ended up flipping from this um, dictatorship type thing to a Christian nation. It's actually one of the most crazy stories in the history of the world that we'll talk about later, that Rome, the most oppressive, most ruthless um, civilization, actually turned Christian. And many of the reasons why they turned Christian was because of the faith and the example of those who were dying in the Colosseums each and every day. Okay, And so once Constantine became emperor... He became, and more specifically, his wife, the empress, became fascinated with relics and Christian history and Jewish history. And so she did a big tour to all these sites and started proclaiming, because she could as the empress, that's Mount Sinai. With no historical background, with no evidence whatsoever, the reason why Mount Sinai is located in what would later become the Sinai Peninsula is simply because the Empress said that's where the whole Moses and the Ten Commandments piece took place. 
that does not flesh out well with biblical history and does not flesh out well with history. So even though it says Mount Sinai, even though it's the Sinai Peninsula, even though some of your maps that were written most likely by Zondervan Publishing Company say that's where Mount Sinai is, I'm going to tell you I don't think that's where it was. Which means that the crossing of the Red Sea is not on the left side where the Reed Sea is, it's on the right side where the Gulf of Agba is. Okay? Now, look down on the map just south, or just south, and just below it, and you see two beachheads. And if we could take the water away, which we do just to the bottom of that, that 3D image, you can see a little bit of a land bridge. Now, it's still deep. This isn't giving God any help for the people to cross, but we see a little bit of a land bridge. We see that big old beachhead and that little path, that canyon path that leads to it. That beachhead can hold about 2 million people. Okay, But it is sort of like a, well, our backs are against the water. This area, if it is the true crossing absolutely makes sense and fits. Not only fits with how they would have crossed, where they would have crossed, but it also fits with the idea that they are actually leaving Egypt and not re-entering Egypt. So I think those places are most likely where the Red Sea crossing is. Um, Some people have gone, well, the real translation is Reed Sea, not Red Sea, and the Reed Sea is a marshy, swampy land. Um, That's not necessarily true. Um, The translation could be Reed Sea, but it also most likely is Red Sea. Both these are considered the Red Sea, not just the left side. So we continue to move on. You see that little dot up at the top. That's most likely where Mount Sinai is. Okay, we can't prove that because you're not allowed to have access to that region currently. Okay, that is a high holy area actually of Islam. We talk about Mecca, that's around where Mecca is. Okay, so we look at this. Now, the other fascinating thing is, as archaeologists are looking at this Sea of Aqba, they started finding some weird formations at the bottom of the sea. If you look on the far right, Look at these formations and on the very bottom that are on the bottom of that trench. What do they look like? Chariot wheels, okay? Again, this is extra biblical. Those could be chariot wheels of someone else. It just seems a little weird that it would be a bunch of chariot wheels at the bottom of of this one particular spot. So I, I, I believe that the crossing probably happened over on the other side. Honestly, it doesn't matter where the crossing is. The fact that the crossing did happen, that God miraculously intervened, um, the seas parted on both sides, the Israelites went through. When they were through, they turned around. Moses did what? Okay, pointed his staff out there. The seas collapsed on who? Okay, the Egyptians. Now, who was lost in the in that little piece? The Pharaoh's army. This gets into another um, um, hotly debated piece. Is well, if the Pharaoh died in, and by the way, we don't know exactly when this happened. We can assume if it's in the ninth or eighteenth dynasty. Um, Thutmosis III died in fourteen fifty. That's also about the time when they believe the exodus happened. Okay, So it would make sense that possibly Thutmosis III was the one that chased him and the one... Um, there's also others that say, well, Amenhotep II and Thutmosis III co-reigned, which is true, for a couple years. It could have been Amenhotep who, by the way, during the time that we think the, the plagues were happening, he was in Palestine battling other... He didn't... 
return to the scene until after. So it could have been him chasing Moses into this. We don't know. Um, one of the skeptics is saying, well, there's no way the Pharaoh could have drowned in the sea because his tomb is in Egypt and we have his tomb and his body is in there. A couple explanations to that. Number one, they've looked at Thutmose's three. If Thutmose's three was actually the Pharaoh, um, the body that's in his tomb is that of a 20-some-year-old. Okay, Thutmose's three would have been around 80 at this time. So it's very possible that was not the same um, Pharaoh. But more likely, the Bible never said that he was... Um, his just buried in the bottom of the sea, never to return. If we look in the Bible, it talks about the Egyptians pulled the bodies off the shore. Okay, so it's very possible that, yes, the Pharaoh could have died, his body would have floated naturally to the shore, they would have grabbed the body, put it in a tomb, and all that kind of stuff. So, again, that's the 18th dynasty. We get all the way across. They're now out of Egypt, and now they are heading, um, heading to where? Anybody know? I'm looking at 15 going, that doesn't make sense. I'm still in 1 Corinthians. All right. So turn to Exodus 20. We get to a real popular spot in the Bible. Exodus, again, I'm in the wrong book. Genesis 20 is Abimelech. What's Exodus 20? The Ten Commandments. Okay, so... As we walk through, and we'll do the, a pretty strong study on this in uh, at the mine, as we walk through, Israel is now out of Egypt. They're out of a place, out of their homeland. They've, they haven't been, been anywhere else. Nobody alive remembers what it was like to be up in Palestine. Okay? Nobody from Joseph's family is still alive. Okay? So we have about a million people. We have a huge... And I, I don't know if you've ever seen refugees coming out like out of Iraq or something and just the hordes that come out, how chaotic that is. But yet the Bible talks about how organized it was and how they came out in their different tribes and their different ranks and, and stuff. This also goes to play with the fact that Moses was a phenomenal leader and he knew how to lead masses of people. Okay, So he leads them out. Um, they, they come out with all the riches of Egypt. So they come out with a lot of stuff. This is, by the way, during the Bronze Age in history. So they're coming out with a lot of great uh, great items. They cross the Red Sea. Their one big threat, aside from the desert in front of them, is the fact that the army that was pursuing them is now gone. And Egypt, by the way, from this point in their history in the 18th dynasty, is sort of pointless in history. They, they sort of disappear. And that would make sense when not only you, you lose a lot of the leadership, but you lose that, that slave base that was in there. Um, Egypt, really, you don't see them rubbing shoulders with history too much more. Um, you see it a little bit with the Ptolemies um, coming up um, with Greece, but not much. They're, they're pretty pointless after that. And so Moses now has this huge horde. Imagine as a leader, God provided, everybody's through, and now you're going, okay. <laughs> all these people, all these mouths to feed, all these things that are um, um, going on. And we'll talk about that uh, um, on Tuesday night. Um, but it, it was a, it was quite a, a spectacle as they went through. But the celebration obviously was huge. And so they get to a point 
um, where God begins what I would call boot camp. They just came out of a 400-year sort of nation-building um, hibernation, but now they've got to, or uh, now they've got to go through what I would call a boot camp, a training on here is how you are going to be a nation, and not only a nation. Here's how you're going to be a nation under God. This is how how things are going to work, and so. In this particular part of the Bible, we start getting into some real strict... How many have military background? Okay. How's boot camp for you? Yeah, okay. And so this, this is boot camp. And, thing, and things that you're used to, the way you're going about life, are you're, just, you're being retrained every single day. And, and you're being formed into a unit, into, into something that, that um, is powerful. And that's what God is going to do over the next short period with Israelites. Not only in this first piece, but once they go up and um, they disobey God and then they have to wander uh, around, it's just a boot camp. And, it, and it's hard. And there's a lot of hardcore rules that don't necessarily apply to us today. So you'll go through Leviticus and you'll see rules on, on beards and all these kind of stuff. Um, as we go through that, you need to understand that, that those, most of those don't apply today. Those are specific rules for this people. However, there are also other rules that do apply to us today. So let's look at the, um, the Ten Commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, this was important. Um, this is a command against worshiping any other god than the one true God. The Hebrews worshiped God, but this is a God who is silent to any of those who are alive. This is the first time they're actually seeing from God. Okay, God has been silent since the time of Joseph. And they've been living their whole life in bondage, and it's very natural to go, oh, maybe there is no God. And my great, great, great grandfather um, talked about this God, but I, I haven't seen any evidence. And all of a sudden, you just met face first with the one true God. And these Hebrews, it wasn't not only shocking to the Egyptians what happened in the plagues, what happened at the Red Sea crossing. The Hebrews were standing there going, as each Egyptian God slowly got dismantled in front of their eyes. And so God is sitting here going, all right, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. From this time on, you need to understand there is one God, one true God, that is me. Okay, Monotheistic, there is no other God but me. Okay. Second one, you shall make no, or you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or above or on earth beneath, beneath or in the waters below. Okay. So it, it talks about the second, the second piece. You shall make no image. Okay. No idol. Again, they're coming out of a pantheistic, idol-driven society where everything was a god, and there were monuments to every one of those gods. Okay. God saying, don't need that. Okay. Second one, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That's a tough one for us, because we do that all the time. We do that all the time. And us Christians fudge a little bit, and I just did it. Um, we, we, we replace bad words, and we, we do that, and oh gosh, oh my goodness. And, um, but, but really, we're not supposed to use God's name in vain. We are to con- God's to be holy. Okay? He is no longer 
one of millions of gods where you can go, oh, I don't want to worship him today. I'm going to worship this God. And No, God is God and he is holy. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He is God. Remember the day and keep it holy. Okay, so remember the Sabbath. Uh, number five, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Let's pause here because um, you shall not murder is important. Um, the King James mistranslates this. Okay, King James talks about you sh- thou shalt not kill. Okay. Kill is not the appropriate translation for this. Murder is the appropriate translation for this. There is justifiable killing. There is justifiable killing. Self-defense, war, punishment. There is justifiable biblical killing. Okay? And so murder is a murder of innocence. Okay? A murder against God's plan. All right? So thou or you shall not murder is... Um, the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. This command against having sexual relations with anyone other than one's spouse. You shall not... And by the way, Jesus, when he comes in, he adds a lot to these, saying, you know, I, it says you shall not murder, well, even if you think... or You shall not commit adultery, well, even if you think lustfully. So... As we look at the Ten Commandments, you need to understand that these Ten Commandments, especially as Jesus unpacks them, you're going to break these. Okay, you're going to break these um, quite often, and it's just an, and it just goes to prove that you can't do this alone. Okay, we cannot make it on our own. Okay, um, we need God. You shall not. Or you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, and on down the line. So those are those are the Ten Commandments that God is given uh, giving to Moses. Okay, so it's important for us to understand these are Ten Commandments. There would be more um, laws and rules that would come about. Um, um, following, but as because we run out of time, as we go today, we need to understand that as he took Israel out, God was doing a couple things. Number one, he was showing what eventually would happen on this thread line leading up to Jesus, that God would provide a way out. He's done this in the past. Okay, The whole idea of God placing Noah's family in the ark is another way of symbolizing what God's going to be doing in the future. So he passes them through. God spares his people. His people are now ready. By the way, people go, well, why was God silent for so long? They came out, and this is the perfect time for the Exodus to happen. The perfect time with the perfect man in charge and the perfect season for this to happen. You don't do the Exodus with a hundred people. Okay? You don't do the Exodus with a thousand people. Those are, a hundred people's not a nation. A thousand people's not a nation. You do the Exodus with millions of people. That's a nation. And now the nation is coming out and they're heading to the promised land that God promised Abraham a long time ago. Okay, so they're coming out a nation and now for the next short time, this nation is going to go undergo a boot camp. They're going to discover firsthand who God is, how we're going to live in accordance under his authority, how we're going to respect and worship God, how we're going to sacrifice and point towards the cross. And God is setting the foundation and the stage of this nation leading in um, to the time when they would get back to the promised land in Palestine. Now we're going to find out, and we'll talk about the cyclical thing, that Israel would disobey over and over again. So 
throughout the Old Testament is just a history of Israel following God, Israel disobeying, punishment coming for that disobedience, um, um, some kind of salvation or redemption coming once they discover that they've failed, and right back. So it will just this whole circle all the way up through um, Jesus. So it's a powerful, powerful time as the nation is beginning, and they're coming out really in, in good shape. It's going to be hard for them. Um, Modern-day Arabia is not a fun place to tour around. Um, I'm assuming 15 or, or um, 3,500 years ago was not uh, much fun either. So Tuesday night we'll talk about that, or you'll be able to listen to it online. Um, so any any questions as we, we head out today? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, Ruel and Jethro and the third name. There's actually a third name. They're all the same person. They're they're all the same person. I believe they are the same place, um, and I'll get you that, that scripture, but they, they both are in Midian, not in the peninsula. And so both those places, um, especially the, the burning bush piece, that obviously is in Midian, and the Bible over and over says that's in Midian, that's where he was um, tending his flock and all that. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, the, they're the same area. Yep. Someone else had a question this way? Yeah, yeah. So the movie obviously has 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 time um, a, a time crunch there. Um, yeah, that that happened over a course course of, of time. But but they can actually move fairly quick. They're they're moving and they're fleeing for their life. They can get across that in fairly good time. Now you'll notice they took a route that that is actually pretty smart. Um, the common way to go across the peninsula is up close to the ocean. That's the that's the human trail. That's where most people would go. They did not go that way. Okay, they would have gone down down south, obviously, which would have been smarter. Keep in mind, if we do believe, and I do, that Moses was a general, he knew the peninsula like the back of his hand. Okay, he would have been hard. He he, he went to a place that was perfect um, for him for them to flee. Um, if Moses would have crossed the Red Sea up top, where where people believe, and would have eventually. That would have been a bad spot. There's a lot of there's a lot of military outposts up there um, back in the day. Um, because of the top road is where most of the humans went. That's where most of the military posts would be. That'd be a horrible place to run run your people through. Because keep in mind, Pharaoh's army chased, but that wasn't the the entirety of Pharaoh's army. They were posted throughout 
throughout the land. Now, obviously, back then, they weren't able to get the phone call saying, hey, Moses just fled, go get him. They would've, someone would have had to gone and tell them. But, um, but again, bad, bad places to go. And even though there was no phone calls saying, go get Moses, if you're uh, a guard person and you're standing, uh, now this is different than sort of those two British soldiers in Pirates of the Caribbean that are all dumb. If you were an Egyptian and all of a sudden you go, Wow, there's a million Hebrews going by. I wonder if we should do something about this. <laughs> you, you probably would have acted, even though you didn't necessarily know what the context was. Okay, any other pieces? All right, well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Um, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for um, the opportunity to dig into your word, to, to just to, to walk through this whole piece of, of the Exodus. And Heavenly Father, I pray as we uh, continue to read... Um, the story of the Israelites and um, Tuesday when we talk about their wandering and all those crazy stories that happen um, within. And I just pray that we always remember that this is according to your plan and that um, you provided for this nation, um, that you kept them close to your heart and as you do with us. And Heavenly Father, um, I pray, I, I pray that um, um, individuals, we will, we will look, whether it's the Ten Commandments or whether it's just these different pieces and realize that you are God. There is no one like you. There is no one except you. And, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I, I, I pray that as individuals we will uh, um, keep that close to our heart. And Heavenly Father, I pray for our nation as well. Um, uh, that, that we will be a nation under God and um, um, be with us. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the baptisms that happened um, this morning and they're going on throughout the day. What an amazing opportunity it is for someone to proclaim in front of thousands of people that, that you are their one and only God. Um, we love you, Heavenly Father, and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.